Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, writer and broadcaster, Sam Baker. My guest today, Joanna Cannon, is a mental health campaigner and best-selling novelist. Jo left school at 15, only returning to complete her A-levels when she decided to train as a doctor in her late 30s. She specialised in psychiatry before leaving medicine to write in her mid-40s. I mean, how many life shifts can one woman handle? But Jo's passion for psychiatry, her patients, and the way their stories changed her has stayed with her, which is why she has compiled Will You Read This Please? A unique collection of stories of 12 mental health patients in the hope of shining a light on the stigma and isolation that still impact those living with mental illness. Because you don't often hear the patient voice. You hear how a doctor interprets it or how a care interprets it. You don't always hear the person who is actually living with it and how, what they go through. Joanna joined me from her home in the Peak District to talk about the long family history of mental illness that formed her lifelong fascination with psychiatry, training as a doctor in midlife, and the grim reality of working in the NHS. We also discussed why your date of birth is irrelevant, why you don't have to have loads of friends to live a meaningful life, being a bad feminist, and how red lipstick helped her change her attitude to life. Oh, I'm loving your room. Oh, thank you. I've just done my bookcases. Are they new? They're new, yes. They're just Ikea. I had all mismatched bookcases and it was starting to get me down. So I just thought it took ages to put it all together. But then it took even longer to get all my books alphabetical because I'm quite pedantic and I can never find anything. So that was like a good day's work, just sorting books out. Yeah, that's an excellent procrastination tactic. You get a lot of proofs as well, but sometimes it gets overwhelming And I don't like giving any of them away. I like to keep them all. Oh, do you? Yeah, I'm terrible. Terrible. So you keep every proof you're sent? I do. Space-wise, you can't always keep them. But I think somebody's put their heart and soul into this book. And I can't just give it away to somebody. And I might want to read it one day. Wow. Oh, my God. If I kept every proof I'd been sent, I don't know. I can't even imagine it. I'd have literally a room full where I'd barely be able to open the door. I perhaps get sent 
10 or 12 a week. That's a lot. Something like that. It is quite a lot, actually. It is a lot. But there are piles of books all over the house. And I will get around to making a whole library room at some point. But yeah, I just can't give them away. I just feel terrible. That's so interesting because I always feel like when I used to review... I felt if I hated a book, I couldn't review it because I just didn't want to do that to the person. I know, I'm the same. Because I know how it would make me feel. So I just couldn't do it. And I couldn't throw the book away and I couldn't give it to someone else. And I couldn't recycle it and I couldn't... I don't know, perhaps it's from when I was little. Uh, We couldn't afford tons of books. So I always got them from the library and I hated giving them back. I would just keep them all. And I kept renewing Little Women because I hadn't (laughs) grasped the fact that there was only one copy I, th- I thought there was just one copy of the book in the world and I wanted it at my house. So every week <laughs> I used to just renew it. So perhaps it stems from that. Perhaps it stems from not having many books when I was little. I don't know. But I will have to at some point find some kind of system. We didn't expect a psychoanalysis at the beginning of this conversation, but yeah, it's weird. No, not at all. That's really interesting. You still live near where you grew up, don't you? Yeah, still in the same town. Yeah. The library is now very fancy and swish. Not the library I used to go to. But yeah, I live in the same town, right in the middle of the Peak District. Very nice, very pretty. Have you ever left? No, I'm a homebody. I like familiarity. So when you were a doctor, did you train and work in that location, locale too? Yeah, I went to medical school at Leicester and I commuted every day. So it was anything from a four to a five hour round trip every day. I could have stayed in halls of residence, but I didn't want to. And I was quite a lot older than everybody else. I celebrated my 40th birthday in Lecture Theatre 1. (laughs) <laughs> Leicester Medical School, which is a bit bizarre. So I, I trained there. And then when I got my house job, I got them in this area. So I worked at Burton and Derby and Tamworth and around that area. All commutable. Has to be commutable. Wow. I didn't really plan to start here, but since we're here, can you tell us a bit about... Because it's so impressive to go back to school anyway, I think, in your 30s. But to go back to train as a doctor which is such an epic undertaking at any age what made you do it I think I always was interested in medicine in psychiatry especially my uncle had paranoid schizophrenia and I can remember when I was about eight years old he was sitting in the kitchen talking to my dad his brother and he was talking about cameras in the walls and how the police are spying on him and typical paranoid paranoid delusions and it frightened me at eight years old. I was sitting on the stairs listening in. It frightened me to death. I didn't understand why his thinking was so tangled. But I knew that it fascinated me. I wanted to know why he felt that way, what made him think like that. And as I got a little bit older, I looked into psychiatry as a profession, and it said you had to have a medical degree. And I thought, well, that's me gone then, because I'm not bright enough to be a doctor. I'm no good at science. Because you label yourself as you go on through school. And I decided I was no good chemistry, biology, physics. So I left school when I was 15, which I'm sure you know, because it's the most Googled, like, whenever you Google me, it's like she left school at 15. I left school at 15, because I didn't know what else to do. I really didn't know what else to do. And I did a lot of different jobs. I waited tables, I went behind bars, I delivered pizzas, I worked at Rescue Kennel and Cattery. And eventually, when I was in my 30s, I did a first aider course, just a basic first aid course, run by paramedics at the local village hall and in the break coffee break I said oh I would love to be a doctor I'm not I'm too old now I can't do it I'm in my 30s and this paramedic said no people in their 30s go to medical school people in their 40s go to medical school now so the next day I enrolled to do three science A levels (laughs) with a bunch of 18 year olds which was quite an experience but it was brilliant I loved it 
and I applied to medical school and obviously you apply in the middle of your A-level so you apply with just predicted grades so all I had was one O-level in French when I went for my interview at Leicester Medical School that's all I had to offer them and predicted A's at A-level but that's all it's a bit kind of bullshitty and the guy who interviewed me was an elderly professor and he was obsessed with my age and he kept saying, yes, but at your age, are you going to be able to cope with a workload at your age? And he kept harping on about my age. And in the end, I got a little bit pissed off with it. And I said, look, if you want to reject me for a good reason, that's fine. Reject me for whatever reason you, you reject people for. But don't reject me because of my date of birth. Because your date of birth is a little bit like your national insurance number. Like you need it to fill forms in from time to time. But otherwise, put it at the back of the drawer, forget about it. It doesn't matter. Reject me for something worthwhile. And he just sat there and raised an eyebrow and I thought I've blown it now. And then two weeks before Christmas, I got an offer of a place and at the bottom he'd written Happy Christmas. And I thought, I wonder if it was my audacity and my speaking out that convinced me or or what it was, I don't know. But that's my long journey to going back to school. I, I didn't have the confidence to do it the first time around. How did you get the confidence the second time? Did you just think, what the hell? Yeah, I think I got to the point where the jobs that I was doing, all the bar maiding and the kennel maiding, I enjoyed it, but I felt as though I needed something to push my mind a bit. And I love learning. Even when I was doing those jobs, I was doing like little courses here and there to try to just top up my learning because I loved information and gathering information, owning information. And I just thought, you know what, sod it. If I don't try now, I'll never know. And so I, I just went for it. It's a good way to do things because... The number of deathbeds I have sat at as a doctor and the number of dying people I've spoken to and nobody ever regrets trying. But even if you fail, trying is always the best way forward. And that's what I did. I just gave it a shot and it worked. Even now when people send me a letter (laughs) addressed to Dr. Joanna Cannon, it's all. And I think, oh, yeah, that's me. (laughs) And everybody says, oh, you're so brave doing it. But that age, going back at that age, you don't have to do things the way everyone else does them. You follow your own path and whatever plot life has got in store for you, that's what you follow and that's what I did. And I think I made a better doctor doing it at that age than I would have done if I'd been 18 because I'd done all these jobs. You know, I worked in a kebab shop. There's not much difference between A&E and a kebab shop on a Saturday night. Equal amounts of blood and vomit. So it kind of makes you, you know how to talk to people. You know how to find a level with somebody. If you work behind a bar, you know how to chat to anybody that walks through the door because they come for conversation as well as alcohol. So it teaches you to find a rapport with somebody quite quickly. And that's what you have to do as a doctor when you're taking a history. You have to find some way of connecting with the patient so they talk to you openly. And I think those jobs, although they didn't at the time seem purposeful, they're enjoyable, but I didn't see that they had much kind of lifelong purpose. But my goodness, they did because they taught me a lot, an awful lot. So interesting, isn't it? Did you always intend to specialise in psychiatry? Oh, yeah, that's what I wanted to do. I think if I hadn't done psychiatry, I would have either done palliative care or care of the elderly, because I love those rotations. But psychiatry was always waiting for me at the end of it. That was always what I wanted to do. The human mind fascinates me. So was this all motivated by the uncle that you we're talking about just now or were there other things going on for you in your childhood and teenage years that drove your fascination I think my uncle started it 
there's quite a long history in my family. When you go through my family tree, there's a long history of mental illness. My great-grandmother died in an asylum. My grandfather died in an asylum. On my dad's side, there's, there's a lot of genetics involved. So that was a seed that was sown that interested me. But I think because... I was a loner as a child and I the only child of an only child. So I never really fit in and I didn't know how to join in. So I was the kid at the side of the playground waiting for the bell to go. I was that kid. And I think when you're that kid, you learn to observe. You watch other people and watch things going along around you and you get good observational skills. And I think that helped me choose subconsciously helped me choose my profession because I became fascinated in human behaviour and the behaviour I would see, not just at the edge of the playground, but when I got older and I started taking more notice of people. But I think it, it helped me, again with psychiatry, it helped me as a writer because there's a lot of parallels between psychiatry and writing because it all rests on a story and a narrative. So I think those years of standing back and watching and observing other people. It was something that helped me later on with the career choices I made. And it made me interested in human behaviour and why people behave a certain way. And I think when I was little, I had a lot of anxiety. I used to have panic attacks when I was a child. And that obviously made me more empathetic towards people with mental illness because I'd observed it in people in my family and I could feel it in myself that I was prone to anxiety and not wanting to leave the house and wanting to be at home. So I think all of those things worked together to direct me to that profession. And once I got there, it felt like home. It felt like that was where I was always meant to be. I suppose then the obvious kind of question would be, you got there and you worked so hard to get there and you'd got there later, a bit later in life, and it felt like home so why did you leave a few years later? I know. I think when I worked in my first psychiatry job, it was absolute heaven. I was so well supported. It was a brilliant team, brilliant consultant. But you can't stay in one place in medicine. You have to keep moving around. And I moved around and I moved to a different place and a different trust. And it wasn't supported. It wasn't the place that the first job had been. I didn't have a regular consultant. I just had locums all the time. I was given too much responsibility for a junior doctor and I felt a bit lost. And I did at one point complain about a consultant that was in charge of me because I felt he was unprofessional and I felt he was dangerous. And I put it in writing and I complained to the trust. And I was very quickly warned off from doing that by the people in charge that it wasn't a good idea to create a fuss. And the guy, the consultant eventually ended up going to prison. He went to the next job, did the same kind of stuff there. And somebody did have the courage to report him and wasn't put off. And he ended up going to prison. But it shook me so much that nobody would back me up where I was working. And at that point, I was an NHS locum. And it had come to an end and was due to be renewed. And at the same time, Collins had just bought The Trouble with Goats and Sheep. And I thought, you know what? I'm not comfortable in this job. I'm not comfortable. I love the nurses. The nurses are amazing. Support workers are amazing. But the people further up, the people in the suits with the clipboards were not amazing. And I felt like I was shortchanging the patients that they weren't getting what they deserved. They were getting me with the best will in the world, but I was having to go to tribunals as a junior doctor and argue why somebody should remain on a section and have their liberty taken away from them. And that is a huge thing to do. It's the only time you get your liberty withdrawn when you've committed no crime. And I wasn't mature enough kind of experience wise to do that. I didn't feel as though it was my job to, it's a consultant's job to do that. And because I looked older and I was older, everybody thought I had more experience than I did. And I thought the patients deserve somebody with a consultant level of experience, not just me. So all of those things just came together. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to just have a break. 
I'm going to go out and promote goats and sheep and take this amazing opportunity. And then when I've done that, I will come back and find another job in another trust. But of course, that didn't happen because then goats and sheep was so successful, which is amazing. And they wanted another book. And, and I've never actually gone back. I've done voluntary work on the wards, but I've never actually gone back as a doctor, which is a shame. And I miss the patients every day, every single day. You miss the patients, but not the work, really, or not the environment? or I miss the work because I miss sitting and talking to someone and making a difference to someone and I know as a writer you make a difference to people but you don't get that immediacy and you don't get that one-to-one and I miss sitting on a ward talking to somebody and getting their trust so that they will take a medication even though they don't think they need it because they trust you they'll take their medication and then they get better and it's the most incredible feeling and you feel like you're making such a difference to people so I miss that and I miss the people I met and I miss the nurses but I do not miss the system of the NHS and I don't miss the box ticking and I don't miss the lack of resources and I don't miss the lack of support from the people in the offices on the top floor. That's what I don't miss. When you complained about this guy and were warned off, roughly where were we? Were we in the early 2000s? We were in about 2015. Oh, wow. I was just going to say, I wonder if the fact that he is now in prison is because of how much the climate changed in the couple of years after that? It could very well be. It could It could be. It was a different trust. I didn't even know he'd gone to prison. One of the nurses that I worked with sent me a Facebook message and said, have you seen this in the Daily Mail? And not being a Daily Mail reader, I hadn't seen it. And it was a big spread on this guy and he'd gone to prison. And I felt vindicated, but I felt such a coward because I hadn't seen it through but I was warned off in no uncertain terms that I was to leave it well alone and coming from a really lovely job where people were supportive to an environment like that where I felt completely alone it was just terrific but it could very well be that people's attitudes had changed because they did it it should be easy for people to speak out in a situation like that in a company and a work environment like that but it's not it's really hard in the NHS to say something I've been given jobs before that have been way above what I should be doing, not just in psychiatry, in medicine, in respiratory cardiology, orthopaedics. Because there's so many shortages, you're given jobs as a junior doctor, you think, actually, I shouldn't really be doing it. I'm not experienced enough to do this. But there is no one else to do it, so I'm going to have to. And that's a horrible feeling because you feel as though you're shortchanging people. It's interesting, isn't it? Because there's such a kind of a cult, if you like. Cult isn't the right word. You might be able to think of a better word, I'm sure you will, around being a doctor. Medicine is, I think you've said before, medicine isn't a job, it's a vocation. It's something kind of special and other. Do you think there's an element of that 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 made those senior people more untouchable or not? Is it just corporateness? You can hide a lot behind vocation. I don't care what people say, you are expected to keep your head down, your mouth shut. There's this ethos that you should just keep going because you've been given a very privileged position and everything that goes with being a doctor and it's your vocation and you should be working 14 hour days and you shouldn't complain you shouldn't need food and water to sit down and you shouldn't even need to go for a wee because this is a vocation and there's all that problem around it psychiatry it wasn't that bad psychiatry generally it was a specialty where people actually listened to each other and supported each other But medicine, surgery, A&E, all that lot, it was horrific. And not just doctors, nurses. That's a vocation as well. And everybody working in the NHS is burdened by that word because we're not expected to complain or speak out or criticise. And Miss Mouthy here... 
I would say what I thought all the time. I think because I was older, I just didn't give a shit anymore. I used to get into trouble. And I used to think of myself as this maverick. And I would march across the car park in the morning with my bleep swinging on my belt. And I think, am I going to annoy you today? Because I'm just going to go and get things done. Because it's just ridiculous. And what was the impact on your own mental health of that, of succeeding at getting into this thing that you had always wanted to do and felt like you couldn't do because you weren't clever enough or it wasn't for people like you or whatever. And then to just feel like completely, I don't know, it's, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but let down by it. Yeah, absolutely. Being so thrilled that you've passed finals, the pressure of passing finals, and you finally get to become a doctor and you finally walk onto a ward with a stethoscope and a lanyard, say you're a doctor, and you walk into the bowels of hell, basically. You have this idea as you go through medical school of the kind of doctor you want to be. And you don't want to win prizes or have diseases named after you. You just want to make a difference to people. In whatever way you can, you want to just help. And I know that sounds really cliched and cheesy, but it does get you through five years of severe study and financial hardship. And then you get onto the wards and within a few hours, you realise you can't be that doctor. It's impossible because you haven't got the time, you haven't got the resources. And that, along with the pressure of the work, And all the distress that I saw as I went through my day. And I couldn't switch off from it. I think because I was older and I could reference things from my own life, I couldn't switch off. So I would take it all home with me. And I would sit at home thinking about the people I didn't get to speak to that I wanted to. The people who were dying. The people who might not be there tomorrow morning. The families who got questions that I didn't have time to answer. And it it presses down on you. And in the end, I just burnt out. I just... I couldn't cope anymore. And where did the writing come in? Because you hadn't always been a writer, had you? No, I'd never written in my life. I knew when I was going through that and all the the stress of all that, that I needed a coping strategy. I used to go sit in my car with a League of Friends sandwich and a flask of tea. And I started writing. And I consider myself a reader, not a writer. But I'd read Sarah Women When God Was a Rabbit. And I loved that book so much. And it made me want to write a book. So I sat in my car just writing this story about the summer of 1976 and two little 10-year-old girls, never thinking for one second that anyone would ever read it. thought my mum might read it. And I got to about 30,000 words, about a third of the way through. And I just entered it into a competition at a writing festival out of curiosity to see if it was any good. And I won the competition. And I got seven agents offering me representation. And and that that was like a Richard Curtis film. So this book that I wrote in a car park by the end of that week had been sold to HarperCollins. And I've not even finished it yet. Oh my God, that's an amazing story. It was very strange. I absolutely love the truth about goats and sheep. And I think probably for loads of reasons, one of which was definitely that I was 10 in the summer of 1976. But I also love the way that your characters are always ordinary outsiders. I think that quite often when people write about outsiders, they're always other. They're always like somehow exceptional. And that's not to say that ordinary people aren't exceptional, but I think there's not really much recognition in fiction or in the world, actually, that ordinary people can be outsiders too. And when you were talking about 
your childhood and the playground and the library. I had to stop myself interrupting you because I was like that kid as well in the playground, just waiting for the bell to go so I could go back and sit at my desk and not feel like a sore thumb. And I think you always really capture that. Your characters always really capture that so well, that experience of being, I don't know, in today's parlance, it would be othered, but ordinary othered. Am I making sense? You're making complete sense. No, you are. I think because I've always felt like othered, that makes me want to write. I want to give a voice to people who stand at the edge of the playground or the edge of the dance floor and don't quite know how to join in. And when I was little, I watched Alan Bennett and I watched Talking Heads. And that gave me a love of ordinary people and narrative and unreliable narrators. Authors don't write things by chance. Whenever you write something, there's a reason for it. You're answering a question in your own head. And when I wrote Goats and Sheep, which is about being an outsider, that was when I was working as a doctor, a junior doctor, ironically. I was a goat in a world full of sheep. And I think that's why I wrote about that, because I was somehow understanding it and processing it in my own head. And then when I wrote my second book, when I wrote Three Things About Elsie, that book is about how you're valuable no matter what you do and who you are and how small your life might be, the world will be ever so slightly different because you existed. And I was writing that when I'd left medicine and when I thought I wasn't being valuable anymore and my life didn't make any difference. So I was talking to myself with that story, I think. And when you write a book and if you look at authors, we'll very often revisit certain themes. And I think that's why I write about outsiders because that's how I feel. Most of the time, whatever I'm doing in life, it always seems to be either 10 years too early or 10 years too late (laughs) by normal standards. I spent most of my life trying to be the complete opposite of me and thinking that's what I needed to do. And as I got older, I've realised actually it's okay to be me. I'm enough. But it's taken me this long to realise that, which is a damn shame. But at least I got there in the end. Yeah, at least you did. You're in your 50s now, aren't you? Yeah. It's completely fascinating, isn't it? You wrote a piece about friendship, which I absolutely loved and really identified with, about the kind of lionization of female friendship and how there's just there's so many books about female friendship and that kind of whole BFF thing, or even more the kind of girl gang of close female friends. And I absolutely love the piece you wrote because it was basically saying, hang on a minute, is there something wrong with you if you don't have this big gang of close friends? And I think in society, there's a definite sense that if you either don't have loads of friends or you only have one or two or, God forbid, if one of those is your partner, then... There's something wrong with you. And that's just, it's a carry on from the playground, isn't it? A continuation of that thing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And when I first told my mum I was going to write this article about having no friends, she goes, oh, for God's sake, people think you're right weirdo, Joe. But even my mother said that. And I said, no, there must be other people out there that don't have a BF, that don't live in a soap opera, that don't sit around hugging each other all day. And the the reaction from that piece is incredible. So many people told me they felt the same way. When you write, it makes you very vulnerable because you're standing on a stage saying, this is how I see the world. Does anyone else feel the same way? 
and it's quite a scary thing to do. And there are some things I just keep my mouth shut about because I think people will think I'm strange if I say that. But I wrote that with a good heart. We're bombarded by this image of how we should be living. And I know that it's driven by consumerism because inadequacy and a feeling of if you have no self-worth drives consumerism. So they want us to feel as though we're lacking in some way because that means we'll go out and buy something to make ourselves feel better because that's human nature. I will fill this hole in my life with lipstick or a handbag. It's not what fits there, but it's an empty space, so I'll buy something to fill it. So they want us to do that. So they are constantly bombarding us with images of how we should be living. And if we don't quite fit into that box, then we're made to feel stupid and pointless and inadequate. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Even though I know that mechanism is there I still buy into it and it's pitiful really you scroll through Instagram or Twitter or anything and you're constantly seeing images of how you should be living and I don't live like that there will go a week when I don't speak to anybody does that make me inadequate am I a failure because I haven't got a best friend that I'm on the phone to every night but I'm happy as I am I'm fine that people buy into this and it's such a shame sometimes I feel because I for example, look after myself and go to the gym or wear makeup. I'm failing as a feminist. Do you know, I, I get this double negative back at me. I think I should be not giving a shit about things like that. I'm buying into the patriarchy and I'm buying into this and I shouldn't be doing that. I should not care about lipstick. And on the other hand, you've got adverts saying, buy this lipstick, your life will be complete. Yeah. So you're constantly... Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. No, I know that I really felt like that about taking HRT, feeling absolutely terrible. But at the same time, there was this little kind of chippy voice on my shoulder going, 
if you're a good feminist, you wouldn't want to like prop up a pharmaceutical company. And it's just, hang on, whose side are we on? And we're not on our own side most of the time. We're not. And this internal narrator that nags at us morning, noon and night. If you've got that going 24-7, you've got to believe it, aren't you? You have to step back from it and step back from the media and the adverts and the self-criticism and the inadequacy and do more of what makes you happy. And it's such a simple concept. Have you got better at that as you've got older? Yeah, I think so. I think I've got better with self-acceptance and not trying to be somebody I'm not. We all do it from time to time and I still buy handbags. I think I always will, but I don't buy them to fill a hole in my life. I buy them because I like the handbag. But I have got better at it. I have got better at being selfish and I have got better at not doing what people expect me to do, but doing what I feel comfortable with. And I've learned that no is an answer all on its own, that I don't have to explain or justify myself afterwards. But it's so hard. Sometimes people will say, oh, you've done really well. You've got these best-selling books and you've this and you've that. And immediately knee-jerk, I say, yeah, I've been very lucky. Why do I say that? I've not been very lucky. I've worked hard. I've worked hard. There may be elements of luck somewhere along the way. But my immediate reaction to anybody praising me or being constructive is to say, yes, I've been very lucky. And I've learned as I've got older not to say that because it's demeaning to me and other women who have worked hard. So it's little things like that, understanding the power of language and the power of what I say and being able to distance myself from how society would like me to be and just accepting this is who I am. I like my own bed. I like my own company. I like my dog. I like to sit and read. I do not like pubs. I do not like eating out. I do not like going on holiday. I like being here, enjoying myself reading, going for walks with my dog. That's what makes me happy. And if that isn't society's norms, then I'm very sorry, but I'm doing what makes me happy. I only get one shot at this. So let's stick to what gives me joy. And my mum will be somewhere listening to this saying, why did you say that? No. People will think you're a weirdo. No, I think it's brilliant. And it makes me feel really better about myself, actually, about the fact that I am always arranging things and then spend all the time between arranging the thing and actually doing it, trying to work out how to get out of doing it. As I'm agreeing to something, as I'm literally agreeing to something and saying, yeah, that'd be really great. I'm thinking, how can I get out of it? And it's not that I don't like people. I'm just a, an introvert who likes people. So I like observing people. I like mixing with people to a degree. But at the end of the day, I just like my own company. I get up at midnight. I go to bed at four. I get up at midnight. This is my routine. And I sit in the early hours writing and I walk my dog at three in the morning through the fields with a little head torch on and I'm happy. And at the end of the day, the goal in life is to be happy and that makes me happy. So that's what I do. I'm sick of pretending to be somebody I'm not. This is a little bit of an aside, but do you always feel safe at three in the morning? With a big German shepherd, yeah. I wouldn't, <laughs> Good I wouldn't point. walk that on my of own. Of course, yeah, you've got... I <laughs> With should. a giant German shepherd. <laughs> People do say to me, is that not a bit dodgy, walking through the fields on your own at three in the morning? But Lewis, as friendly as he is, and he adores people, if anybody's the least bit intimidating, he, his personality will change because very often on a kind of Saturday morning or a Sunday morning, 
our morning bleeds into other people's nights and we will meet drunk people trying to find their way home. And drunk people always want to talk to Lewis for some reason. <laughs> and if they're really drunk and they're swaying around and they're leaning over him, you can see him start to feel not very happy about it. So I do feel safe with him. Yeah. He's my little, my little guard dog. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about appearance and I'm trying to think when it was. I think it was a couple of years ago. Maybe it was during the pandemic sort of time. You did a really lovely series of tweets about when you had your car accident in your 20s. And I hate myself using the word journey, and I've really got to find another word for it. But basically, your journey back to red lipstick. Would you mind talking a little bit about this? Because neutral lipsticks are great if that's what you like, and bright lipsticks are great if that's what you like. But I do think that people shy away maybe from colour and those kind of things that they've in the past loved as they get older and you've done the reverse is what I'm trying to say. I think even before my car accident I was very self-conscious I didn't feel confident about the way I looked I compared myself to other people all the time and comparisons we know is the thief of joy um, but once I had my car accident my face actually broke in the steering wheel this is before airbags so the impact of the car and I went straight to the steering wheel the steering wheel broke in my face and ripped all up here. So you could literally lift my face off my skull like this. And they stitched it back and they did a great job. But obviously, I've got scars, I've got wonky nose. And if I was reserved before, this sent me right to the back of the room. I didn't want anyone to look at me. And I know my publicist will often, for different pieces, say, have you got a photograph of when you were in your 20s for such and such a piece? Have you got a photograph of when you were... But there are no photographs of me. From when I had my car accident to when Goats and Sheep was published and I had to have my photograph taken. So I just retreated. And when I wore lipstick, it was definitely beige. And I lived in taupe. I'd paint my whole life taupe if I could, just so I could blend into the corner of a room. And I used to see red lipstick on other people. Like I'd see Mac Russian red on people and I'd think, oh God, that looks nice. Why can't I wear that? No, you can't wear that because your lips are, I've got scars because I've got scars into my lip line. My lip line isn't even. But you can't do that. How could you draw attention to yourself like that? Don't be ridiculous. I got an advent calendar, a Mac advent calendar. And obviously December 24th, the last one was a full size lipstick. And of course, when you open it, what is it? Russian red, because it's Christmas and everybody wears red lipstick at Christmas, according to marketing. And I thought, I'd just try it on. I'm not leaving the house, but i just try it on. And I tried it on and I looked at it and I thought, I can see the scars on your lips, but you're going to see those anyway. No matter what colour lipstick, they're going to be there. Why not wear the lipstick you want to wear? Why not just stuff everybody else? This is how my face looks. I can't alter it. I don't want to avoid certain things just because it draws attention to me. Why should I filter my face every time I take a photograph of it? You want to be authentic. You want to be yourself. So I went out in my red lipstick. And unsurprisingly, no one gave us stuff. We're all walking around only concentrating on our own shit. We're not concentrating on anybody else's. You only have one chance to wear red lipstick. Like one life, one chance to wear red lipstick, one chance to wear whatever clothes you want to wear. All these articles about things you shouldn't wear over 50. Why do they 
say you cannot wear leather trousers after 50 or you cannot have your hair below your shoulders after 50. Who made these stupid rules? But we make our own rules in our head. So I just said, no, I'm doing it. I'm going to feel as bad about my scars no matter what colour lipstick I wear. So I might as well just wear bloody red. Get on with it. And I wear what the hell I want. I shop in Topshop or wherever you're not supposed to shop after the age of 40. And you read articles, all of them say, oh, my daughter goes to Topshop. And I, and I think, why are you doing this? Why are you trying to brainwash people into behaving a certain way? So that's my new attitude. Mac Russian Red. Yeah. Go out and buy one, put it on. Yeah. <laughs> I bet the sales will go up after this comes out. I hope so. It's a good colour. <laughs> I've just got to ask you, I love your shirt. Where did you get it? Oh, in fact, this is Topshop. I was wondering. This is Topshop. It looks like pyjamas, actually. Very comfy, very big. Like, I've lost a lot of weight recently, so everything is oversized on me. So I quite like that look. Have you been on a diet or have you been ill? Or I'm doing being nosy now. No, it's fine being nosy. No, I started, I had really weird food allergies. Things would bring me out in random rushes and I get eczema on my eyelids and in my skull and I thought it might be food related like I've got some kind of allergy or intolerance to some kind of food so I thought if I do an elimination diet then I can maybe work out what it is it could be dairy because that tends to really mess people up skin so I started cutting stuff out and I started losing weight because I wasn't eating dairy I wasn't eating giant plates of pasta or whatever it was I wasn't eating and it got quite addictive just losing weight and, and then I was going to the gym and I was spending three hours on my treadmill down on my peloton downstairs and I thought oh yeah I've lost two pounds so I, and it's hugely addictive and that hit of dopamine really makes you feel good so I've ended up losing 30 pounds oh my god I didn't mean to lose 30 pounds I didn't start off meaning to lose 30 pounds but I did with this elimination diet and then this kind of weird addiction I got to losing weight and this sense of control over my own body and I don't really want to lose any more weight. So I have started eating things again. But it's a really easy path to walk down, especially as a woman. I'm really surprised you had 30 pounds to lose. I'm still in the middle BMI range. I'm still OK. Did you actually work out which of the food was causing the eczema or not? No, you did I buggery. No, <laughs> no, I didn't. I think it might have been dairy because I don't eat meat. I've not eaten meat since I was. 12 years old so I think it might have been dairy but I think a lot of the eczema is stress eczema to be honest I think it's just my body doesn't process stress particularly well so it has to come out somewhere yeah so we all get that we all get the stress it's processing stress that bodies aren't particularly good at we're bombarded with too much information too much pressure internal pressure so on that note I'm conscious I haven't asked you about the book so before I ask you the questions I always ask what was it that led you to do it earlier on I said that I think about the patients I miss them all the time so I miss the patients every day and I think about them every day and the things that people told me and the lessons that I learned from them and their humor and their wisdom and everything that they went through and it enriched my life so much knowing those people and one day I was sitting here on Wednesday lunchtime and I was thinking, God, those people made such a difference to my life. Isn't it a shame I can't use this small platform that I have to help other people be heard and to help other people? And I thought, wouldn't it be great if you could put a patient or somebody who's lived with mental illness with a best-selling author 
and together they could collaborate and write a story. Wouldn't that be brilliant? So I went on to Twitter one Wednesday lunchtime and I just said very casually, this is my idea. Do you think it would work? Is anyone interested? And the amount of support and enthusiasm was unbelievable. And immediately Tracy Chevalier said, I want to be in, I want to be part of this. Please tell me how I can sign up. I want to do it. Claire McIntosh wanted to do it. So many brilliant authors wanted to do it. And then we had to find stories, like the real mental health stories. So I went to the Royal College of Psychiatrists. So it went out with their newsletter and to all the people on their database and all the carers that they talked to. HarperCollins were right behind the idea from the beginning. And we found 12 brilliant stories of what it really is like to live with mental illness, because you don't often hear the patient voice. You hear how a doctor interprets it or how a care interprets it. You don't always hear the person who is actually living with it and how, what they go through. And I can remember when I was at work once, there was a patient who had really severe auditory hallucinations. He had schizophrenia and he had command hallucinations, which are voices that people hear that tell them to do things. And he sat and told me what it felt like to hear voices and how real they were and how one day in his house he was so convinced there was someone else in his house because he could hear this voice that he sprinkled flour on the wooden stairs to try and catch the person walking up and down stairs to get their footprint on the stairs because it was really said, Dr. Joe, it's like you talking to me now. It's like that level of reality of voice. And I remember thinking when I was putting this book together, I need people to understand what it feels like. What does it feel like to hear voices? What does it feel like to be sectioned and have your liberty taken away from you? What does it feel like to have ECT? What does it feel like to be suicidal? What does it feel like to lose someone from suicide? And I thought, I need to find these stories. And we did. We found 12 amazing stories. And we got 12 amazing authors, 11 amazing authors and me. <laughs> 12, um, Joe. Tell these stories. And the title of the book, Will You Read This, Please? People always feel more listened to if they write things down. And patients on a ward with the best will in the world and the best staff in the world don't always feel heard. So people would sit and write down how they were feeling or what they wanted to say. And when I used to get onto the ward in the morning, I would have a steady stream of patients coming up to me throughout the morning with a piece of paper. And they'd sat and written down their feelings and what they wanted to get over to me. And they'd walk up and say, Dr. Joe, will you read this, please? And I would get it constantly throughout the morning. So it was such a natural title for me to choose that for this book, because these are 12 people that you wouldn't hear otherwise, that you wouldn't hear if they hadn't had the courage to come forward, and you wouldn't hear if the 12 brilliant authors hadn't agreed to tell the story. So that was the premise of the book. And the only conditions I had were that the patients were paid the same fee as the authors. So everybody was paid the same money. The patients got the royalties from the book. And the authenticity of the voice was still in the writing, even though it had gone through someone else, because I didn't want it to be diluted. And the people that we chose, the authors that we chose to tell the stories are so skilled that the voices come straight through, that there's no weakening of the voice at all straight away who this person is. And I'm so proud of it. It feels like everything I've ever written was to get to this point where I could give this platform to somebody to say what it feels like to live with this illness. And my two worlds somehow came together and I feel valuable. I feel as I've done something worthwhile giving this opportunity to people. And that the joy they're getting from seeing the book coming up on Amazon 
like it was as we were so excited because the book was on Amazon they were so excited because it was mentioned in the Guardian or and it's lovely to give people that experience and that joy from recognition acknowledgement that they went through something and hopefully the people who read the book if the people out there going through a similar thing which there will be it will make them feel less alone so I'm very proud of this book it means a lot incredible absolutely incredible and I think you really should be really proud and I, I hope it does incredibly well because I often think Everybody talks about how much more, how okay it is now to talk about mental health. But I just think that some issues are palatable and some aren't. And oh God, yeah. I'm not like creating a hierarchy of pain in mental health, but I do just think words like psychosis and schizophrenia, they still come with huge stigma attached. So it was amazing to read from inside this story. But I agree with you. I think it's good that anxiety and depression is more openly talked about that's brilliant but I would love to see the same for these big hitter psychosis diseases like schizophrenia because it is scary schizophrenia is a scary thing from the outside when you look at it to a lay person it's a frightening thing and whenever you see people the newspaper headlines as somebody's pushed under a train by somebody with a diagnosis of schizophrenia you get that and it just feeds this image that all people with schizophrenia are dangerous and it's a frightening illness and I wanted to dispel that and there is actually one story about a guy who stabbed a man on a train because he was psychotic and he got schizophrenia and he believed this man was working for MI5 and he needed to destroy him and he stabbed this guy a complete stranger on a train and what happened and how he spent the rest of his life trying to make amends for what he did and how he felt about it. Because you never hear that. You never hear what happens to the person who pushed the person. Do you know, you never hear their background, their story. They don't just arrive on a train platform and do that. There is a story behind it. And as many hashtags as we have and T-shirts and awareness days, nothing changes. We're all still really scared of psychotic illness. And it shouldn't be that way. We should be empathetic we should try and understand why somebody was driven to do such an awful thing so his story I think was particularly important to include just to try and counterbalance all the shouty headlines about people with schizophrenia or mental illness that do these things I should probably ask you the questions that I always ask at this point what is your emotional age it varies throughout the day to be honest I have hours when I feel extremely emotionally mature and hours when I feel about 12. But I think in my mind, I'm probably early 30s. Give us a book recommendation. It can be something that's been important to you for a long time, or it can just be something that you've loved recently. Oh, a book I have loved recently, absolutely adored. It was called The Covenant of Water by Abraham Varghese. It's absolutely beautiful. It's like a multi-generational story set mainly in southern India about a family who every generation at least one person drowns. It's like a family curse and why that happens. I was devastated when I finished. It's an 800-page book and I wished it was an 8,000-page oh book my because God. I loved it so much. It was beautiful, absolutely beautiful. So I loved that. What advice would you give younger women? 
wear more red lipstick. <laughs> Don't waste your time and your energy being the person you think people expect you to be. Be your authentic self. Even with clothes sometimes, we buy for our imaginary selves rather yeah. than our authentic selves. And I think that's a really good barometer of how your mind works. You look at what clothes you buy. Do you actually wear these clothes? Do you oh, lead no. that life that you wear these clothes? So you need to look at your authentic self and go with that. Stop wasting your energy being somebody you're not. Who's your old bird role model? I think Martina Navratilova is inspirational. Of course, we all loved Chris Evert because she was blonde and glamorous and pretty. And then Martina arrived and she completely smashed that image of what a female tennis player, athlete should be like. And she paved the way for so many other women. And even now when you read her interviews and you read the health problems that she's going through now, her attitude and her self-belief is just incredible. I think she's brilliant. I think she's utterly brilliant. So I would definitely say her. And also, a bit controversially, I'm going to say Victoria Beckham. <laughs> I know she's only kind of 51, but she's an older woman. Because she doesn't give a shit what people think. The amount of crap that woman gets in the press is unbelievable. She's too thin. She's too shallow. She's too thick. She's too this. She speaks like this. She looks like this. She doesn't care less. She just does what she wants. And I just love that in somebody. You might not agree with her. You might not like the way she lives her life, but she doesn't care. And anybody doing that has my vote. So I'm going to vote for VB as well. She does what she wants. And I think we could all do more of that. Maybe without the mini skirts and the <laughs> very expensive skincare, but yeah. we could all take that attitude. That's what I'm trying to say. Brilliant. What's your superpower? I think determination. Unlike a little Jack Russell, if I set my mind on something, I'd do it. Whether it's become a doctor at 40-something or writing a book in a car park or whatever it is I set my mind on doing, I will focus on that and I'll finish it. And I might throw the rest of my life under the bus while I'm doing it, but I will actually do <laughs> yeah. it. So if I decide I'm doing something, I'm doing it. So that is my superpower. How many fucks do you give? None. Although some days I find myself wandering back into giving a fuck about things but I have to really put my brakes on and give myself a good talking to because we all go into that sometimes without thinking I read the books I want to read I wear the lipstick I want to wear I walk my dog at two in the morning and I do what I want so no I don't give any really long may it continue yeah <laughs> that's brilliant Joe. thank you so much it's, I've absolutely loved talking to you it's been great I can't remember the last time I saw you. It's probably in Oxford. It was a really long time ago. Thank you for listening. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review and follow because it really does help other people find us. And if you'd like to support The Shift further, please consider becoming a member of our community. Find out more at steady.media forward slash The Shift. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.